I'm Sarah Samwell. This is Policy Talk. Welcome to Policy Talks, a show about policy analysis and international affairs. It's been one year since Canada shut down due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And that year, there have been a host of challenges, from a lack of PPE to a lagging vaccine rollout. But lockdowns have posed an even greater challenge to those fleeing domestic violence. This month, we are focusing on what has become known as the shadow pandemic. I spoke with Caitlin Geiger-Bardswich of Women's Shelter Canada to learn more. So I want to start by asking you to take us back to March 2020, uh, when the COVID-19 pandemic was starting to hit Canada um, and shut down the country. Kind of what was going through your mind as someone who works with women's shelters? Right. So the first thing that was that we were thinking about was the fact that women were now no longer going to be able to access help. So that was our biggest concern. We were hearing that shelters across the country were experiencing a real decline um, in calls coming into their 1-800 crisis lines. There were some shelters, especially in the north and in the Atlantic, that were saying that their, their phone lines just stopped ringing. The lines went dead and that that was very eerie. Um, so we were worried about that because we knew that suddenly women were stuck at home with their abusers. They didn't have opportunities to be by themselves in a sense. They weren't taking their kids to school. They weren't going grocery shopping. They weren't going to their own jobs. Their partners weren't going to their jobs. So they didn't have opportunities where they could either call a friend or a family member or directly reach out to a shelter. So we were really concerned about how are these women going to get access to help when they needed it because we knew that the violence was not going to just stop. Yeah, so after that initial moment of it kind of going quiet, what happened next? Did you see an increase? Did you, uh, like, what kind of strategies did you have to come up with to start to keep reaching these women? We support the the over 600 shelters that uh, that work with women and children fleeing violence across the country. So we were hearing and working with those shelters about what were strategies that they needed or what were things that we could advocate for on a national level or even with our provincial and territorial association members. Um, so things like making sure that the premiers or the or the prime minister and uh, Dr. Tam were being very explicit when they were saying stay home, that they were also saying, but you don't have to stay home if home is not safe. So that that key message was out there, that it was out there that if there were curfews, for example, that women were not going to be find essentially for leaving their home if they had to access a shelter. We were also working on just getting information out on social media and ways that women might might see see information in sort of not unusual ways, but ways that weren't necessarily monitored um, by their abusers, letting them know that shelters were still open. We updated our sheltersafe.ca map. So that's a clickable online map that women can use to find the shelter that's closest to them and its 1-800 number. So we revised some of the information on there to include email addresses, to include web chats, to include texting, because we were hearing from shelters that women were reaching out in different ways. Um, not always necessarily due to the pandemic, possibly just because these were more, more appropriate ways or comfortable ways for them. Um, but we knew that we had to offer as many new and different ways as possible for women to reach the shelters specifically. 
So beyond that communication piece, why is a lockdown so threatening for a woman who's in this situation? One line that I sort of heard continuously is that lockdown and isolation is an abuser's dream. Like that's what an abuser is trying to do normally in non-pandemic times. They're trying to isolate their partner from her friends and family, um, from her employer even, or colleagues. They want to know where she is at all times. They want to be able to monitor what she's doing at all times. Now it was much easier for them to do that. And it's, it was so dangerous because if, in a, if you're living with your abuser and you're both locked down together and you're not leaving and nobody is seeing you from the outside world and able to check in on you and check in if, in terms of how things are going, things could get worse. So it's, it's, it's both that the proximity has now changed so that a, a woman can't get away to, you know, to make the phone call or to connect with somebody else, but also the stresses are increasing. And we know that these types of stresses exacerbate violence. So if people were losing their jobs and that's why they were staying from ho- staying at home because they couldn't work from home, for example, or so that economic issues were happening or just even being in close proximity with the same person 24 seven can cause issues in the healthiest of relationships. So all of these factors were coming up and you know, people were scared of the virus. Um, they didn't know what was happening. It felt like the end of the world in some ways. People didn't know when they were gonna, you know, once it started going on for months, when, when if ever things would get back to normal. So all of that stress would exacerbate um, the violence that people were already living with. And in some cases, new violence was also occurring. Yeah, so I'm wondering if any other groups were kind of more impacted than others. We've been hearing a lot about how the pandemic has been affecting people of color. So I'm wondering if those existing kind of power structures are also playing out here as well. Well, as you know, like during during the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement um, took off again or it revised. I mean, revived. It had been um, happening for years, but we were then seeing, um, you know, a lot of people would say to us, well, why don't you know, women just call the police or why don't, you know, we should call 911 if you think your neighbor might be experiencing violence. And we had to very clearly say um, that's not always the helpful response because women of color who have partners of color, you know, they just, they want the violence to end and they don't want a police officer to get involved in a situation that could, that could kill their partner. Like they don't want something bad to happen to their partner. We also know that, you know, women, um, Indigenous women, um, Black and and people of, Black women and people of color experience violence by police at disproportionate rates. One thing we were talking about as well is, you know, the, the rhetoric around if you defund the police, it means that women fleeing violence are going to suffer. That idea is frankly laughable because women are already not believed. Police already don't treat sexual assaults and domestic violence cases effectively. Police officers are more likely to be perpetrators of domestic violence than any other, well, maybe possibly not any other, but they're more likely than the general population to be uh, to be perpetrators of, of domestic violence. So we were working with, um, for example, our indigenous, uh, the indigenous national organizations uh, to find out how we could help them in some ways. So one example of that was we did have a partnership with Rogers that was about getting phones and SIM cards into the hands of shelters and shelter and to the women directly. And we connected them with the National Aboriginal Circle of Family Against Family Violence, um, which represents and supports the on-reserve shelters to make sure that they were able to get these phones as well um, where possible, like where they were within Rogers. Um, zones of service so we yeah we we hear 
I mean, we know that in normal times, women with disabilities, uh, queer and trans women, um, BIPOC women, they experience disproportionate levels of violence and, and the violence they experience happens in different ways as well. So that is definitely happening during the pandemic, but we don't, we did not purposely, or we did not do a lot. There's not a lot of research about it, I guess, in mm-hmm. a sense. I don't, I can't really give you numbers of like, but we have, we did put out a stat recently that um, while in, while black women, uh, so this was during black history month. So I think it was while black women represent about 3.5% of the Canadian population, they represent 9% of the women in shelters. Um, so that was a stat we got from shelters when we were distributing uh, wage funding to them. So funding from the department of women and gender equality, we asked them to, to estimate how many women or the percentage of women they'd be serving with different groups. Um, so they, they anticipated that they would be serving about 9% of women they would be serving would be Uh, Black women. So that shows uh, the disproportionate rates of Black women in shelters and needing to use shelter services. And it was even higher for Indigenous women. So we we definitely know that different groups of women were experiencing different things. Yeah, Yeah, there's a couple of threads that I want to pick up on there. But when you say they're experiencing violence in a different way, can you um, expand on that for like people who may not know? Maybe they're thinking of the stereotypical battered wife or something of that nature. So what are some forms of violence that people are fleeing from. Right. So violence can take many different forms, of course. So we know that there can be physical violence is sort of the one that most women or most people think of. Um, It's not always the most, the one that uh, women are most likely to flee from. So there's also a term called coercive control that we use. And that's that's sort of the the lockdown idea where where the perpetrator is trying to completely control the woman, either control, you know, her finances, control where she goes, who she sees. Um, There's emotional abuse in there, psychological abuse. There can be sexual abuse. Um, There can be something we call religious abuse. So that's if um, an abuser is using a woman's religious beliefs against her. Um, There can be reproductive abuse. So either forcing a woman to carry a pregnancy, forcing her to terminate a pregnancy, forcing her to not use birth control, all these different things. In terms of how different groups of women can experience violence differently, uh, women who have precarious status, for example, their perpetrators can use that against them. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are, it's like that legally anything could happen to them or that could affect their status if they divorced or if they broke up. But for new immigrant and refugee women, sometimes there's language barriers, sometimes there's not a full understanding of the Canadian legal system. So the perpetrator might be their only source of information. So if he's telling them that like, if you leave me, you will lose your status here in Canada, she's going to believe him. Um, So that's a form of violence and abuse that's happening. We saw with COVID, there were some perpetrators, perpetrators were starting to use it as a, as another tool in their, in their toolkit in a sense. So they were saying, you know, if you leave, if you leave the house or if you leave me, you're going to get COVID. Or if you leave me, I'm going to tell all your family and friends that you have COVID. In terms of, of queer and trans women, there's always the threat that, that a perpetrator will out them to family or friends. Um, so there's different types of abuse that can disproportionately affect different groups of people for, for women with disabilities. If it's often that their perpetrator is also their caregiver or does a lot of caregiving, has a lot of caregiving responsibilities. Um, so they can threaten to re- withhold that or to, to otherwise um, injure them in ways that able-bodied women don't have to think about. Mm, yeah, so that definitely makes sense how that lockdown mentality 
is an abuser's dream. I yeah. want to I want to pick up on you know the different groups that you were mentioning, and I I just wanted to you know in your kind of anecdotal experience of the last year, did you see an increase in any of those groups? Um, you know, even men, for example. I know you work specifically with women, but um, even were you hearing more from other groups that we don't normally hear from? We didn't find that. What we did find, which you might find interesting, is that we so we did a, um, a survey or sort of a mini report in November 2020 uh, called Shelter Voices. So that surveyed shelters about their experiences uh, during the during the pandemic, as well as looking at things in two different groupings. So it was um, sort of during lockdown, so from March to May, and then during um, times when the restrictions had sort of eased up. So we saw that you know, in lockdown, you know, a lot of the calls and the requests for shelters had decreased, but as soon as those lockdown measures were, were eased, things skyrocketed. So the, the call volumes drastically increased requests for um, residents for women to actually move into a shelter increased because one thing that we, we always stress is that, you know, women don't have to move into a shelter to access the services. They can access counseling or safety planning um, over the phone or other, other means through Zoom, et cetera. Um, they don't have to move in. Um, but they, we were seeing an increase in requests for physically moving into the shelter as well. It also asked um, if shelters were seeing a, a difference in the types of violence that was coming into the shelter. And over 50% of shelters were seeing that they were saying that they saw an increase in severity of violence um, during the pandemic. So we don't have stats on how that affected different groups of women, but that overall there is a, a, an increase in the severity that women were experiencing. That's really unfortunate. Um, I want to turn now to a more national perspective. Um, you were the organization that helped um, distribute the funds for mm -hmm. the different or uh, different shelters, excuse me. Um, so when Trudeau came out with this package pretty early on within the first couple of weeks, um, what was your organization's reaction to that? Yeah, so very early on, the Department of Women and Gender Equality reached out to us to see if we could help distribute these funds. So we have done a lot of research on um, with and for shelters. So we had all this these stats about how shelters are already underfunded um, that 10% of shelters say they already can't meet their operational budgets even with fundraising. And the vast majority of shelters rely on fundraising to meet their operational budgets. So with COVID, all of that fundraising or most of that fundraising was suddenly not happening because most of those fundraisers were in person, right? Um, so we knew that this money from the federal government was going to be very, very useful, especially because we were seeing that the provincial government, so normally shelters are funded through the provincial government or non non-Indigenous, non-on-reserve shelters are funded through provincial governments. Um, and the provincial governments were doing things in very haphazard ways. So some provinces were really supportive of their shelters, others weren't. Um, so the national uh, money was a way to sort of try to even the playing field a little, a little bit um, and to really support support shelters with, with things that they normally wouldn't um, be able to afford. So things, you know, women and children are now suddenly Staying, having to remain in the shelter at all times. So this money could help them buy art supplies, activity supplies. It could help them buy technology like laptops um, or iPads, especially for kids who are now suddenly doing school within the shelter. Um, it could help increase their Wi-Fi capacity because suddenly you have you know 25 people at home all the time who are trying to access either schooling or entertainment or whatever. 
Um, and we worked very hard. So the, the federal government came to us because we have the most up-to-date list. Um, so they knew that we would be able to uh, to get to efficiently get the funds out to the greatest number of shelters. And we also worked with them to try to have the um, the the requirements for that funding to be sort of as flexible as possible so that shelters could use it for exactly what they needed rather than only using it for what like the government thought they needed, for example. Mm. So that flexibility was built in and we heard that shelters were very grateful for that flexibility. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I heard that it was a very efficient process. So maybe you can just walk us through it very briefly. Like how did the shelters access the money? Um, what was what were the requirements? Just very briefly, um, how that process went down. Sure. So the, there were basically two requirements, which was one, that they were a violence against women shelter so that they were supporting women and children fleeing violence as, as part or a large, a large portion of their mandate. Um, the other requirement was that they were still open or currently opening, currently open and currently able to receive women and children. Um, so we had our list of um, shelters that we knew of and that was, you know, it's generally a pretty complete list. But what we did is we would send those lists to WAGE who would who would send them to the, their provincial counterparts and we'd compare and make sure that our, nobody was missing off of their, our list or their list. And, um, you know, so we did come, we did discover a few shelters that weren't on our list, for example, that we were able to add. Um, then there was always a few shelters that the provincial government or that even we thought should be receiving it, but then they came back to say, actually, no, we're not a VAW shelter, we're a different kind of shelter. Um, so they would no longer be on the list. Um, so that was basically the way that we identified which shelters we'd be reaching out to. We sent out registration forms. Um, so it wasn't so much an application, it was a registration. So it was asking shelters for the first round, like how many shelter buildings they had, how many units they had to try to get some sort of equitable division of the funds while also taking into consideration, you know, smaller shelters, it doesn't necessarily mean that they need less money because they're also often in rural areas um, that don't have the populations to sustain the fundraising that you know urban shelters are able to do. So um, we basically gave a base amount for each physical building, no matter the size of the building. And then if, a, if an organization had a second or a third building, we would then also do it by, okay, you'd get another base amount or you would get, um, an amount per unit if it was a second stage unit to kind of yeah, distribute the funds that way. Um, so the first round was basically just registering that you needed the money, sending us a blank check, or not a blank check, excuse me, sending us a void check so that we had your banking information so that we could do the direct deposits. We did a small amount that was under $5 first to ensure that all everything had been you know, inputted correctly. They would confirm what the amount was that they received and then we would send the full amount. Um, and then once we distributed all of that, we knew how much money we had left out of the initial bulk that the government sent to us. And we did a second round that was based on need. So it asked people to identify if they needed more funds or if not. Um, and then that was um, divided by the number of shelters who registered. They got funds. We made sure that the Inuit shelters, so the Inuit shelters were not part of the ISC funding um, stream. So Inuit shelters have a very, they're like on reserve shelters in the sense that they're, they don't get as much funding 
as um, non-Indigenous shelters, they're often struggling more financially. So we doubled the amount that every other shelter got in round two for Inuit shelters. And we worked with Pouchutit Women's Organization to make sure that that was appropriate and that we had, you know, every all the shelters on our list were, were the ones um, that we should be reaching out to. Uh, and then the government came out, I guess, in October with new round of money. So that was, again, another another situation where we went back to shelters and asked them to give us an indication of how much money they needed. So, you know, 10000 20000 30000 et cetera. And then they selected that amount and we already had their banking information. So it all went out before Christmas, which was great. Yeah. And it was very like there were at the time there was only five or six of us um, in the organization. We're now at seven people. Um, so there were six of us basically working into the evening sometimes and weekends just to get make sure all the money was out. And we did it very efficiently and we're proud of that process. We did see and we heard from our um, shelters, the shelters that we help support in Quebec, um, they were doing a different process. The Quebec government wanted to distribute their funds. It took them a lot longer, you know, a month or more on average to receive their funds. Um, so that was very frustrating for the Quebec associations and for the Quebec shelters because they're members of us so they knew what we were doing with the rest of the country and they were very frustrated with how um, with the bureaucracy of what was happening with with getting accessing their funds. Now certainly we're only a year into this you don't have your stats yet but from you know your initial assessments how impactful was this package from the government to these shelters? I think one thing we're trying to always advocate for is that there is a need for core funding, core operational funding at all times. And that, you know, shelters should not have to, any essential business like a hospital or a, you know, ambulance service, a paramedic, a firefighter, like nobody should have to fundraise to, in order to operate when it's an essential life or death situation. So it is problematic that shelters normally have to fundraise just to keep their doors open. So this money was greatly useful for the shelters um, that we, we distributed to. They were very grateful to us for facilitating it as well as to the federal government for, for you know, providing it. Um, but these were sort of one-off things. The federal government does not generally um, fund women's shelters. So we are still advocating for increased funding um, at the provincial level, especially um, for shelters within each province um, so that shelters don't have to constantly rely um, on fundraising to to act to to serve the women and children who need their help so so desperately. And that's sort of what you might be asking about later kind of falls into the national action plan on gender-based violence is something that we talk about is that you know and the access the uh, a woman's ability to access services should not depend on her postal code and right now that is something that is true in canada and that's something that we're working towards no longer being the case so if shelters don't have to fundraise and they don't have to worry about fundraising when they should be worrying about serving women and children fleeing violence that's their mandate that's what they do best um, that will be a better situation for everybody. And what have you noticed in the response from the public? Are their minds changing about shelters? Um, should we consider them an essential service? You said hospitals and ambulance. Um, any sense there of a, any attitudinal shifts? We did see the, one of the great things we saw is that um, shelters did report that they were very, very much supported by their communities. Um, we also saw an increase in the amount of online donations coming to us and an increase in 
corporations reaching out to us. And, and, and that I think was a lot, a lot of it was due to the media. I mean, you know, the media can get a bad rap for various reasons and for some legitimate reasons as well, but they, they were putting out a lot of stories about how the pandemic was affecting women, how it was affecting women fleeing violence. And so the general public and, and people who, you know, have money like corporations and people who can donate individually, they were seeing those stories and it was in their mind um, that this was an important issue and that it was effect that the, that the pandemic was affecting different groups of people disproportionately. And one of those groups was women fleeing violence. So we definitely are grateful that there's more awareness out there. I think that this is an issue. We also are generally seeing people, people are starting to understand that domestic violence can affect anybody, that it's not, you know, the stereotype of, of a woman who has no self-esteem and allows, you know, a perpetrator to come into her life and control her. Like, that's not how it works. You know, you don't start dating someone who treats you badly. Like, they don't start treating you badly until you're very much invested in the relationship. I think also seeing the, the mass shooting that happened in Nova Scotia, I believe that was in April, that really shook people, I think, as well, and how that had the domestic violence component. So now we were at a point where the lar- the three most lethal uh, events in Canada's modern history all had a violence against women or misogynistic um, lens to it. So people were realizing that this could happen to them, that it could happen to any, somebody that they know. We still are working, like there are still a lot of cases we hear about and we see in the media as well of uh, police or judges um, not taking taking instances of violence or sexual harassment seriously. Um, so we are still really much working on that. It is something that people still think when, you know, a woman um, um, says that she's, you know, as they've been raped or that she's been a victim of domestic violence, the questions often come up like still with like, well, what were you wearing? Um, you know, you were in, why didn't you leave? Like you, like, oh, there's a lot of that victim blaming of like, well, you should have done something. We see that with the Nova Scotia mass uh, shooters situation where, you know, the police have, uh, I don't know if that's now been changed, but they um, charged his partner with, um, you know, providing him with with wep- with um, bullets, and that's something that doesn't take into consideration the what's happening when you're in a domestic violence situation. Like, did she really have the freedom to say no for that? Um, and it, it that was a very much an example of like this is again a victim blaming situation that the RCMP are are perpetuating. Um, Generally, yes, that the, the, the general public is, having, is, is learning more about domestic violence and is um, working on some of those victim blaming um, reactions. Yeah, and I mean, we've mentioned a few here, but what would you say are some of the biggest lessons from this very challenging year? I think COVID has made a lot of us very reflective about our mm-hmm. society and particularly tied in with those mass violence situations such as in Nova Scotia and the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer. So some of those lessons you learned and what does Canada need going forward to support women in dangerous situations? So I think the the biggest lesson that can cut across sort of any social justice movement is that you need to listen to the people who are affected by the issue. So you need to listen to um, to Black people. You need to listen to women fleeing violence. You need to listen to trans women. You need to listen to women with disabilities. Anybody who's um, experiencing some form of oppression or injustice, um, they are the experts often, <laughs> and they're the experts in what needs to be done. Like, yes, we do need 
some other experts to help like lawyers or doctors or whatever in, in order to create, let's say like legislation, but it should really be informed by the people who are experiencing the oppression. So the lesson I think we would learn is that governments generally have to listen to the women who are fleeing violence, listen to the shelters who are working with them because they again are the experts in what needs to happen. Um, we are seeing that a bit with the national action plan. So we are very happy that the government is, seems to be taking um, a very grassroots um, approach in a sense. So it's there's a lot of women's organizations and shelters that are directly um, having influence in what the national action plan will look like. We obviously hope that all of that input will be in the final product. We don't know what the final product will look like in, right now, but um, that's the main thing is that you know, the, the, yeah, women who are experiencing violence, they know what they need. They know what safety looks like for them and what safety feels like for them. And we need to listen to them. And I think that's something I, as a white woman have learned from the Black Lives Matter movement is, you know, I, I should not be interpreting black people's experiences through a white lens in a sense, like I should be taking what they're telling me at, fa at face value because I don't have these experiences, they have these experiences and I need to believe them just like I would want anyone to believe something about, believe me um, about anything that happened to me. So it's it's sort of that idea about believing believing people is the main, the main takeaway. Something we should all do more of is listening and believing each other, especially when we're in pain. Yeah. So last question. Looking forward, we're now in this uh, vaccine distribution mode. So I wonder if there's any discussions about shelters getting priority access for people who are living in communal settings. You know, we're seeing that in seniors' homes, and I know homeless shelters are trying to advocate it for advocate for priority access as well. I'm just wondering what the status is with women's shelters. Again, it seems to be very different depending on the province. So we are hearing that some provinces, yes, they are being considered essential workers, essential services, and they're in group settings. So they, yes, they count as getting priority access. Um, in other provinces, it's not necessarily, um, or they're, they're still further down the list than perhaps we would like them to be. So we are definitely of the opinion that, you know, shelters are essential workers, or shelter workers are essential workers. Um, they can't just close up shop because violence does not stop. Um, they are at a greater risk of, um, of catching a virus because they are living in these communal settings. And even though shelters are very good at keeping things clean, they've changed the way their, their communal, um, their communal living quarters are, are functioning right now. So there's not as much of that communal gathering. Um, there is, they, they are still at risk. So, and the women who are in the shelter are in a sense still at risk. And we would love to get to a point too, where um, the women, women can be vaccinated, uh, women who are let's say at risk of violence um, could be vaccinated as well. So that if they're having to move into a shelter, they don't have to wait or be quarantined for two weeks because that's a horrible, experience to have to go through that you've just left your home, you're fleeing violence, and suddenly you're in a room, a hotel room, and you can't leave for two weeks. Like that's just perpetuating the, the, the control that you've been under before. So we're definitely advocating for, um, for, for shelters and the women in the shelters to be considered um, priority access. Um, but again, it's a very provincial thing. So more work to be done. Thank you so much. No, thank you for having me. 
this podcast was made possible by the team at iAffairs Canada. To see more of our content, go to iAffairsCanada.com. I'm your host, Sarah Samuel. See you next time.